Well, good morning. My name is Neil Chotai, pastor of Church Life. And it's good to see all of you here this morning. We're going to dive right into Scripture. So if you have your Bibles, please turn them on on your app or turn to Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. I'd like to ask all of us to stand as we read the Bible together. Again, it's Mark 9, 14 to 29. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has it been like this? From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, This kind can only come out only by prayer. You may be seated. So this passage of scripture is actually a continuation of the same storyline from last week. Last week we had Jesus and three of the closest disciples on the mountaintop, and now they come into the valley. And there's a bit of contrast taking place from this passage of scripture to the one that we saw last week. Now in the Renaissance period, there was an artist named uh, Raphael, and he painted a picture concerning this passage. So there's a few contrasts that take place here. So last week we were on the mountain, and today we're now in the valley. Up in the mountain there was a small number of people, but in the valley there's a crowd. Up on the mountaintop there is peace. In the valley there's chaos. On the mountain there is a sun that is glorified. Jesus. In the valley, there is a son in torment. So we're seeing these contrasts take place uh, within the scriptures that we're looking at. Uh, this, because this is a long passage, we're just diving right into our scriptures today. And it's really interesting to see these contrasts take place. And I'd like to kind of like um, uh, put it in terms that we could understand. This mountaintop was kind of like, you know, being at church on Sunday. Okay, you're coming in, you have a time of worship and music, and you hear an inspiring message, and you have a time of fellowship, and then Monday morning hits, and all the chaos of the week, right? Right? Okay? You know what I'm talking about? Yep, that is basically what is happening. 
in this passage of scripture. So Jesus is with Peter, James, and John, and they have come down and they descend and they see this situation happening. So we are now looking at everyday living in this section of scripture today. We're going to be looking at faith, not the faith, but our faith. Uh, there are certain scriptures that God has given us to take a look at. And sometimes we can gloss over scripture, which is not really a great thing. But today, this becomes a mirror for us. We're going to look at the scripture, see where we are, and what comes back to us. And we're going to be looking at that today. That's the type of message this is. That's the type of scripture we're looking at today. So I've entitled my message, Help My Unbelief. Help My Unbelief. Some of us in this room may have been Christ followers for decades and decades and decades. Some of us in this room may have become Christ followers maybe weeks ago. Some may be just on a spiritual journey right now wondering what Christianity is all about. But we are all imperfect people. For Christ followers, we are imperfect people following a perfect God, following the scriptures that have been given to us, illuminated by the Holy Spirit as he gives us comfort and grace all to the glory of God the Father. Here's a question for you, rhetorical, don't answer. Have you ever faced unbelief in your walk with God? If you answered no, next week's message will be on lying. <laughs> but I'm assuming the answer to the question is yes. There are times in our life when we're still followers of God. We still have a relationship with Jesus but there's this battle that happens with the flesh. There's a battle that we have, a spiritual battle that is taking place in our minds. And our minds become this battlefield. Because before we were Christ followers, our minds are constantly being affected by sin. And when the Spirit of God comes in, he helps us transform our, transform our minds into thinking and having a mind of Christ, but we're constantly battling this flesh, this unbelief that we're having. I'm not talking about salvation because for those who are followers of Jesus Christ, you are sealed in Christ, but we have these battles of the flesh taking place all the time. So the big idea for today is the way to combat unbelief is to demonstrate total dependence on God. This is not like a profound big idea. This is basically back to the basics. We're going to find out today. How do we battle our unbelief? Well, we're going to go first verse by verse. Then I'm going to give you some takeaways later on. So starting verse 14. It says, when they, so this is Jesus and the three disciples... They come down and they see other nine, the other nine. If you do your math, if you're good at math, that's 12 disciples plus Jesus. This is really good. Then there is this large crowd that's there. Then you have the teachers of the law. Some translations call this the scribes. Okay? Now, what are they doing? They're not exchanging recipes. They're not talking how well the Jews are doing. They're not... You know, just, hey, let's talk about the weather. But they are arguing with the disciples because something has just happened, which has brought in a crowd of people. 
And we're going to take a look at what has actually happened. Now, commentators believe that these scribes have come a long way. If the Mount of Transfiguration happened at Mount Hermon, that's very far from where they were. And they're looking at Jesus and they're trying to find out where are the disciples. And let's see what they're teaching on. Let's find something that they've done that goes contrary to what they believe in. Remember, what they believe, not what God believes, what God says it should be, but what they believe in. And something happened. A man came to see Jesus, but Jesus wasn't there. The disciples were there. And he goes to the disciples, can you help me? And they failed. And then all of a sudden, you have the scribes arguing with the disciples, saying that Jesus is a fraud. You are a bunch of people who just perpetuate this fraud, that you are not godly individuals. And that is what is happening. This is this huge argument that's taking place. And this passage of scripture is also found in the book of Matthew and book of Luke. But Mark gives more of a complete picture of this biblical account. So, so here's this horrible mess, this chaos that is taking place. And when you go to verse 15, Jesus comes on the scene. And all the people are overwhelmed with wonder, and they ran to greet Jesus. Jesus has this amazing following. They've heard about Jesus performing these miracles. And this crowd, pretty superficial, they want to go and see him. They may not really be followers. They just want to see him. Remember, what else are you going to do? going to work all day. There's no Netflix binging. You know, there's no sports on TV. There's no TV. What are you going to do? Okay, well, Jesus is in town. Let's see what he's doing. So this crowd is there, and they're, wow, this is Jesus. This is who we heard about. This guy's absolutely incredible. He's amazing. Um, let's have a good show. Let, let's see what's going on. We go on, and Jesus says, why are you arguing with them? Now, he's asking this question to the teachers of the law. Why are you? He's not asking it of the disciples. He's asking it to the teachers of the law. Why are you arguing with them? Now, I could just imagine the scene as Jesus is down with the three, with the other disciples. And the other disciples are probably saying, oh, thank Jesus that he's here with us now. Okay? Because, okay, he's going to make everything okay. And when Jesus says, why are you arguing? They're probably like, okay, good. The pressure's off of us now. Okay, he's talking to the teachers of the law. And commentators believe that, that these teachers of the law are like, uh-oh, Jesus is here, what are we going to say? But others believe it's because they didn't have a chance to actually talk to Jesus. Because as we look in verse 17, all of a sudden a man in the crowd answered. This man is a father. And he says this to Jesus. He says, teacher, knowing that Jesus is a good individual who comes and shares about God. I brought my son, who is possessed by his spirit. This spirit is evil. It's robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it will throw him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, becomes rigid. And he goes on to say that, I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit. I asked them. So here's this man, this father, he's, he's interrupting this conversation that's supposed to be between Jesus and the teachers of the law. It's really interesting because this man who went to Jesus, went to the disciples, it was well known that Jesus was the one 
who had disciples, and these disciples went around and they performed miracles. When we look at Mark chapter 6, Jesus had commissioned his disciples to go out. And they did drive out demons. But what was so different about this? See, at that point, Jesus had given empowerment to the disciples, but it was temporary. The real empowerment comes in the book of Acts 1.8 and Acts 2.1-4, when the Spirit of God comes upon the people. And the Father says, but it came to your disciples to drive out the Spirit. But they could not do it. This can be actually translated that they were not strong enough. They just were not strong enough. They weren't strong enough at all. The reason was because they were relying on something they had in the past when they should have been continuing on in the relationship with Christ. We're going to get in on that a little bit later. This is Jesus' response. He says, you unbelieving generation. Who is he talking to? He's not talking to the crowd. He's not talking to the teachers of the law. But he's actually talking to the disciples. You unbelieving generation. This is actually a partial quote from the Psalms. Psalm 95.10. In the context of Psalm 95.10, it refers to the children of Israel being in the wilderness. They have just left Egypt, they're going to the promised land, and they're wandering around for 40 years. And the reason why they wandered around for 40 years, it wasn't that Moses lost a map or anything. It was because of a disobedience. And they always complained to God, 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 hey, it was better in Egypt when we had meals, but you were in slavery. And they always had this doubt about God. Yet, God was faithful and just to be with them. And Jesus, you unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long am I going to put up with you? How long? These were the disciples that were with Jesus all the time, performing miracles and hearing the teaching and being with Christ all this time. Imagine being with Christ physically all this time and the amazing teaching that they have heard. That they have heard. Jesus is lamenting, actually, at the moment. It's a lament. But the beauty of it is like he's not angry at the disciples. Yes, he's lamenting that. Why do you have this unbelief? See, we as disciples of God, when we have disbelief, God isn't hard on us. Yes, he's lamenting, but he's showing patience and his love and his grace and mercy to us, just as he did it with the disciples. So Jesus then asks, bring the boy to me. So they bring him the boy. And here we see the spiritual realm at, at play. Here we have a demonic spirit. And immediately when the demonic spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion, fell to the ground, rolled around, foamed at the mouth. See, the demonic realm is real. Sometimes we, we kind of like, you know, just it off to the side that we, you know, we talk about heaven and we talk about this stuff, it's beautiful and everything, but we don't see the flip side of it at times. We don't see the evil side of things. Yes, there are angels. Yes, there's God, but there's also the devil and there's also demons as well. If we were to see the spiritual realm, we would see a battle taking place constantly and consistently, which will only end as we read in the book of Revelation on the final day. So here's this battle taking place in the job description 
of a, of, a, of, of a demon is to take the image of God, to take humanity, and try for humanity not to have a relationship with Christ. They will do everything and anything from stopping individuals. They will try to destroy the image of God, that is male and female, us, with everything that they can, including physical torment. The spiritual realm is very real, and we as Christ followers need to understand that. Now, could you imagine what the father and mother were suffering through this as well? Could you imagine what they were going through? Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? Has been from childhood. This is what the demon has done. Thrown him into the fire, water to kill. To kill. Could you imagine what the parents were going through? The father and mother, maybe the siblings as well. All this time, this is what the demon is trying to do. Trying to kill our son by throwing him into fires, by throwing, in, throwing him into water. Fire, fire pits were very common. They were used for um, heat, heating food, for cooking. They were used for, to keep warm. Rivers were everywhere. But could you imagine what the parents tried to do to make sure that their son was safe? They did not know what was going to happen next, in the next moment. Could you imagine what society thought of them? Oh, your son is demon-possessed. You parents, mom and dad, you did something wrong. You did something wrong. That's why you have this child like this. They would have been outcasts in society. Could you imagine the, the torment that they're going through? The exhaustion that they are going through. So as he's talking to Jesus, the father says, but if you can do anything, please, please, please take pity. Honest and, and, and please, please help us. In other parts of the Gospels, we, we, we kind of like see a situation where there is demon possession, and then all of a sudden, you know, God just, Jesus just healed. Yep. But in this case, it's a little bit different because Jesus almost gives a little bit of a rebuke here. He says, and he quotes the man, quotes the father, he says, he latches on to the if. If you can, if I can, if I can. Jesus goes on and says, everything is possible for the one who believes. Now, I'm going to park on this just for a little bit. And when we look at Scripture, we have to take things into context. This is very important. I've said it many times before. Context is so important for us to take a look at. Because many times people have parked on this, take this Scripture out in isolation from all others and created a different type of theology of it. This is not a blank check to go to God and say, God, I want a billion dollars so I can actually afford a house now. Okay, it's nothing like that. No. God, I want a brand new car. God, God, I want this. If I just have enough faith by myself, then I can have a billion dollars, or I can have a nice house, or I can do this, or, or this little healing will happen, or that. People have taken this, totally changed it, built a theology about it, but they have failed to see the context of Scripture. Yes, we can go to God in prayer and ask God, but it is according to God's will, with the mind of Christ that we have. It's all according to God's will. It's all according to him. It's not a blank check. 
This is a warning that we cannot take scripture out of isolation from others and create a thinking that is so different. In Jesus' statement here, he tries to elicit this faith from the Father. And then we see something incredible here with the Father. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Help me overcome my unbelief. Jesus recognized that his faith was far from perfect. It was still mixed in with some unbelief. But he goes to Jesus honestly and he asks Jesus to help him overcome his belief. We come to God and ask God, help us overcome our unbelief. Because we as Christ followers can have unbelief. Again, it's not our salvation or our faith in Jesus Christ about salvation. But it's, we do have sometimes some belief in life. John Calvin says that about this verse, he, meaning the Father, declares that he believes and yet acknowledges himself to have unbelief. These two statements may appear to contradict each other, but there is none of us that does not experience both of them in himself. Every Christian has some level of authentic saving faith in their heart. However, it's the intensity of the faith that increases and diminishes. The father's cry for help confessing the poverty of his faith is answered by Jesus, not according to the man's poverty of faith or lack of faith that he has, but it's answered because of God's grace, according to God's will. This is a good illustration of justification by faith. Justification is earned through not our own works, but through the grace of God. And when Jesus then sees a crowd that is approaching, he decides he needs to act quickly. He does not want this to be a show for the crowds who just want to see something nice happen. He immediately rebukes the spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out. Never enter this body again. Immediately the spirit shrieked. It convulsed the boy violently and came out immediately. Because that is what Jesus said. But the boy looked like a corpse. Some commentators believe that, that he was actually dead. And then Jesus came and raised him up just like he did Jairus' daughter. Foreshadowing about the resurrection of Jesus himself. Others believe that he was just exhausted because the demon finally came out. And Jesus does something beautiful. Just imagine it lifts up the boy, and the boy stands up. Boy, the boy stands up. Later on, Jesus goes indoors, and he's with his disciples, and asks them privately. This is the start of these, uh, some education is going to take place, some personal teaching, just for the disciples. And they asked, Why? Why couldn't we drive this out? Jesus simply says, it's only by prayer. It's only by prayer. As I mentioned before, my message was help my unbelief. I'm going to quickly go through some takeaways here. God, help us with our unbelief. How do we demonstrate a total dependence on Christ in this situation? First one, repent. Repent. It brings, when you repent, it brings humility. Now you're probably thinking, I already did this. I already repented of my sin. I already, I already did when I became a Christ follower. 
And if you didn't, I hope you do, did. If not, I'll talk to you after about theology and about relationship with Jesus, okay? But yes, we need to repent daily of the sins that we have. See, sometimes when we talk about unbelief, we don't really categorize that as sin, but it is a lack of trust in God. And we need to ask God to repent, ask ourselves to God that we must repent. And it brings humility. We must go to God in, with a contrite heart, a humbleness. We repent before him. My repentance is going before God and saying that, I, yes, I do have a lack of trust in you, and I want to make it right. Repentance deepens our relationship with Christ. And when we depend on him more, it is beautiful. It's opposed to us having this independent spirit. Because when we don't repent, we're kind of like, no, God, I figured it all out. But we haven't figured it out. In our weakness, in our weakness, we go to God, and God strengthens us. It is good to be dependent on somebody that is stronger than you. It's a good thing. You know, when I was in elementary school, I was, I was friends with all the smart people. I was friends with all the athletic people. I was friends with all the not-so-friendly people. But I was friends with so many people, including the strong people. And I'm glad I did that. You know why? Because when I got picked on, I went to the strong people and said, can you beat that person up? It's okay to be dependent on somebody stronger than you. Why would we not be dependent on God himself, who is our strength, who is the one that helps us through all things? But we go to him in humility. Matthew 5 says, blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. What is that inheritance? The inheritance is promised land. The inheritance is Canaan. The inheritance is heaven. Secondly, Believe, it brings freedom. Remember a few weeks ago, it was Easter, and we looked at the resurrection story, and all the disciples saw the resurrected Jesus except for Thomas. Thomas doubted. And Thomas said, if I don't touch him, I'm not going to believe. If I don't see him, I'm not going to believe. But a week later, Jesus comes to see all the disciples, and Jesus interacts with Thomas, and Jesus beautifully says to Thomas, stop doubting, believe. may sound very simple, but it is. There's a freedom in believing. There's a freedom that happens. You know, many times we can just have this unbelief in God that we want to figure everything out. You can't figure everything out about God. It's impossible. We have finite minds. God is so big, such a, he's such a beautiful, amazing, incredible mystery. We cannot figure things out. So why would we try to figure it out and have unbelief come in? Just believe. Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, lay aside every single weight. Unbelief becomes a weight. Cast it off. Because God has called you to run a race. He has called you to run a race well. Why would you want to put on weight and run the race and hinder you? Just believe it brings freedom. Thirdly, obey. It brings clarity. Laying your unbelief aside means to obey God and trust him. Proverbs 3, 5 to 6, many of you know this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your, on your own understanding and always submit. Obey to him. 
and he will make your path straight. He will make them clear. We keep going forward in our lives, and we need to. We may not know the answers to everything, but that is okay. We depend on him, we trust him, and we obey him. And we do that not grudgingly. We should never do it grudgingly. We don't go to God and say, God, we're going to obey you because you make us obey you, and you're a master, and we're your slaves. But we obey because he's a loving, caring father that loves us. And in response to the love, we listen to him and we obey God. We obey him. Lastly, pray. When you pray, it leads to greater faith. Our very existence spiritually began in prayer. Now, we're not talking about the sinner's prayer, you know, you know admit you're a sinner, believe in Christ, and commit your life to Christ. What is prayer? Prayer is simply a communication with God. That's what it is. When God called you into a relationship with him, you answered him in a prayer. In a prayer, you answered God through that prayer. Our spiritual lives began at that moment, and the Holy Spirit came into our lives, lives within us, transforming our mind consistently. That all began in prayer. Every single song that has been written, whether it's a Gregorian chant, a hymn, or the latest chorus, was because somebody went to God and in prayer communicated with him, and we sing biblically and doctrinally sound songs. Every single message that is ever spoken, every paragraph written, every sentence, every grammatical mistake in that sentence was because somebody went to God to reveal what God is to the congregations to say, they declare, this is the gospel message. That was not done out of flesh, but that is done through prayer. Every single thing is done through prayer. 62 years ago, a group of individuals that we are celebrating today, what did they do? They believed in God and they prayed, and we are a result of that prayer. It is prayer which is so important. It is prayer that is absolutely important for us. Because the more prayer, the greater faith. Oh, but the opposite is true. Less faith, less prayer. Less faith, less prayer. It's a downward spiral. A lack of prayer is a root of failure in the spiritual world. I'm not plugging in any prayer meetings at Westbrook. I'm not saying that. I'm not doing that here. This is not a time for PR. And I'm not saying we don't pray. I believe every Christ follower prays. But I believe it's the lack of prayer. Lack of prayer being vibrant. Lack of prayer being active. Lack of prayer being consistent. That's what it leads to. Lack of prayer leads to this lack of faith. Can you be a Christian? Can you be a Christ follower and not and have a lacking prayer life? Can you? The answer is yes. Yes, you can. But God has called you and given you life, and He just hasn't given you life, but life to the fullest. Would you not want to be in prayer and have an active prayer life with Him? Prayer is extremely important and can't stress it enough. And while we're here, we say, we probably say you get conviction. Yes, I need to pray more. But what happens when we're off the mountain and in the valley? What happens when it's tomorrow morning? What happens when we leave these doors? Are we going to commit to prayer? Tim Keller passed away uh, uh, short, lately. And, and this is what he says. 
Prayer is a way to experience a powerful confidence that God is handling our lives well, that our bad things will turn out for good, our good things cannot be taken from us, and the best things are yet to come. When you pray, when we pray, when you specifically pray, the best things are yet to come. When you pray, the best things are yet to come. When you pray, the best things are yet to come. And when the best things are yet to come happen in your life, in your life, in your life, in your life, what happens to this church? The best things are yet to come for West Park Church. This is what God has called us to do. We must pray. We must pray. I love church history. I'm going to close this with this. I love biblical history. I've always loved history. When I became a Christian, I love biblical history. I remember going to Jerusalem and touching the Wailing Wall and just being so emotional. It was beautiful. This is where Jesus perhaps walked. This is where the prophets may have been. And I love church history as well. I love reading about the great awakening, spiritual awakenings that have taken place throughout the world. The great awakening in other parts of the world where, where, where things are happening. Incredible things in the spiritual realm. Outpourings of the Spirit. I mentioned one, one time in the message, um, there was this one outpouring that happened in the early 1900s. A couple of denominations came forth of that, evangelical ones. And it was incredible in the early 1900s in California. And at the end of that outpouring, there was a prophecy that was given. <clears throat> and to get a little bit emotional about this, because when I read this prophecy, it's not one of those prophecies that are like, behold, you're going to do great things. It's not like a cookie cutter thing. It's not like a fortune cookie prophecy, Okay. But I'm going to read certain things, and I'm going to highlight one of them. And at the end, somebody prophesied this about the church. Not the building, but the people, because the people are the church. It said this, and it was a warning. The overemphasis on power instead of righteousness. That there's going to be an overemphasis on the gifts of the Spirit instead of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The last thing, when I first read it, I shook. I shook. And this is what it says. An overemphasis on praise to a God they no longer pray to. I'm going to say it again. An overemphasis on praise to a God that they no longer pray to. Do you believe that the best things are yet to come in your life? We need to get in our, on our knees or whatever prayer posture we have and pray. It's great being on the mountaintop, but majority of our lives we're in the valleys. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the mighty name of Jesus. And we thank you for your word. We thank you for every single letter, every single paragraph, every single passage. And Lord, help us with our unbelief. Help us to be an individual that is committed to prayer. Something that is vibrant. Something that is constant. Something that is consistent. And we know, oh God, that that is what you require us to do, to have communication with you, to speak with you. And through that, you will help us and you will guide us and our faith shall increase because you have called us to be a church. You've called us to be a gathering place, an ecclesia, a gathering of people.
a people that prays and changes our world. We thank you for the mountaintops. The majority of our lives are in the valley. May we be your people of prayer. May we not make a promise right now. And as soon as we leave these doors, we change our mind. But let us commit to that today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.